Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Last week in our study of the book of Romans chapter 12, Pastor Murphy showed us the perils involved in spiritual gifts. Today we'll see basic principles to govern our understanding of spiritual gifts. All right, turn your Bibles with me, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Romans, chapter 12. Let's begin at verse number 1, and then we'll pick up our text in verse 3. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. But I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that's among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, for we being many are one body in Christ, uh, one body in Christ, and every member one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Two Sundays ago, I began to focus on what I told you would be the second major theme for this year. I talked to you, began to talk to you about what is called the matter of spiritual gifts, a very controversial topic that I feel that we should deal with uh, following the first few verses in the book of Romans. In our first message on this matter, on this subject, I called attention to the fact that uh, the Apostle Paul uh, is asking the church to exercise spiritual gifts following his teaching on the matter of verses 1 and verses number 2. I pointed out to you that there was a very clear correlation between verses 3 to 8 and verses 1 and 2. This is very evident when you look at the order or the sequence in which Paul deals with these subjects. You notice in verse number one, the Apostle Paul deals with the whole matter of consecrating the body and surrendering the body to the Lord. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies uh, as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to the Lord. So the first thing he says, dedicate your body, consecrate your body, give yourself over to the Lord. The second thing he says to them is that they need to transform their lives by renewing their minds. So having surrendered your body to the Lord, your next work on your mind, your mind needs to change. Because 
Now God has to use your body and there has to be some change about how you're going to use your body in the service of the Lord. So it seems to me very logical and very sequential that this is not an accidental arrangement of these things. The Apostle Paul clearly has in mind a logical sequence. You surrender to the Lord, you consecrate your body to the Lord, and you have your mind renewed so that you begin to look at life in a different perspective. The third thing that Paul now deals with is what I call the ministration through the deployment of our spiritual gifts. He wants us to understand, unless you surrender your body to Christ, unless your mind is renewed, you have no interest in using your gifts for the Lord in the service. One follows the other. And I think this logical sequence is very, very obvious when you look at what Paul gives us here in this passage. Now, think of that for just a moment. If there's a logical sequence to what Paul is teaching on this matter, think of the implications for a church, for example. If they're believers in the church, therefore, that they're not using the gifts for the Lord, it says two things about them. They have not consecrated their life to him. They have not surrendered their bodies to him. And number two, their minds are not renewed. See? Uh, that has serious ramifications. When you think, therefore, of the implications of this, it tells you what is the spiritual state of a church when people are not deploying the gifts in the ministry. Very, very obvious this is the implication of what Paul is saying here. Think of it this way. God requires spiritual gifts to be used in his church. Two, because God requires spiritual gifts to be used in this church, God gives to believers the spiritual gifts that that church needs. If that believer, therefore, who has been given that gift to be used in that ministry is not using that gift in that ministry, it means that there's one incontrovertible fact. That ministry suffers. See? Listen to the logic again. God knows that we need spiritual gifts for the work of the ministry. God endows believers in the church with the, 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 the gift that that ministry needs. But a believer has a gift and that believer is not employing that gift in the ministry. The logical consequence of that is that work must suffer. It's that your hand decides it's not going to work. Your right hand just said, I'm just not going to be involved. Let the body function without the right hand. So the right hand is paralyzed. The left hand tries to do everything the right hand can do. But it cannot be efficient, even though, because there's only one hand. This is what I think Paul is emphasizing later on when he talks about we have many members but one body. The fact is emphasizing here that within the body of Christ, uh, there's not one individual, there are not two individuals, there are multiplicity of individuals. And those individuals have to function for the church to function effectively. This is why I believe the Apostle Paul uh, deals so frequently with this matter of gifts uh, in the local church. Uh, one of the things that you'll discover when you read the Paul's epistles is that this is not the only instant that Paul mentions this matter. He deals with spiritual gifts also in Corinthians chapter 12 to 14, and he deals with spiritual gifts in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 13. In addition to what you have here in Romans. By the way, it's also significant that Peter himself also deals with spiritual gifts in 1 Peter chapter 4. See? 
All of these men seem to understand that the spiritual gifts are needed within the body of Christ. It's not an if we need them. They are needed. Because if they're not utilized, the church malfunctions. So my question to you would be, uh, are you a helper or are you a hinderer? See? Uh, that's the whole question. Are you using your gifts within the ministry or are you sitting on the sidelines and not getting involved? And if your position is not filled and your role is not fulfilled, it means that something is suffering. Some ministry is suffering, whether it be the Sunday school, whether it be the ladies' ministry, whether that be when we start the rehab ministry, if we get that going eventually. Any ministry that we have, you have a role to play. You just have got to ask God, what is my role? Why am I part of Grace Baptist Church? If you're part of Grace Baptist Church, it's because God wants you to be, play an active role in the ministry. There's something you can do. You just can't stand in the sidelines and just be an observer. You need to be a participant. That's the whole emphasis that Paul is going to give in this chapter and also in later chapters. What we have there from Romans chapter 8 is what you might call a, 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 um, a terse summary of this matter of spiritual gifts. If you want a more exhaustive treatment of it, you've got to go to Corinthians chapter 12 to 14, where Paul spends three chapters dealing with the matter that he condenses here in just a few verses. Very, very important that we understand this, this important matter. Now, as we looked at uh, the passage in Romans chapter 12, and verses 3 to 8, we began our exposition of that passage and mentioned that there are four major divisions to that, those verses. Uh, I covered two of them. I want to cover one more this morning, if time would allow. But let me just remind you what those four divisions are. The first of all is what we have is Paul's personal illustration that we had in, in verse 3. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that's among you. The Apostle Paul is illustrating himself that even though he's an apostle, he's an apostle by virtue of divine grace. That's the emphasis. I'm an apostle, but I'm speaking to you because of the grace of God who made me an apostle. The Apostle Paul is claiming his authority as an apostle, but yet he's expressing his humility. He's not speaking to them as a pope. He's speaking to them as one who has, is a steward of an apostleship. And that is why the Apostle Paul starts with himself because he's going to talk to these believers about their spiritual gifts and the fact that they're grace gifts and they must not have some kind of an arrogant attitude or prideful attitude concerning these gifts. And that's why Paul starts with himself as a personal illustration of one who's received a gift of apostleship and it's all the result of grace. God's favor. See? Paul didn't do anything to get the gift. He didn't work towards the gift. He didn't manufacture the gift. He didn't apply to God for the gift either. It was a grace gift. See? And that's how we need to understand when it comes to our spiritual gifts. See? The second thing that Paul points out in this passage is the peril of these spiritual gifts. Notice what he says. Uh, Through the grace of God uh, given unto me, to every man is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. See? There's always the danger of pride creeping into the believer's life. I don't know if you notice or not, but pride is right at the very door of your heart. It's just waiting for you to just open a little bit and he slips in so slowly and before you know it, you're acting out of pride and you don't even know it. See? Paul understood this himself. Read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 with a thorn in the flesh. Unless I be exalted above measure 
A thorn was given to me to keep me humble. See? So the Apostle Paul is warning about this great peril of pride. He wants us to understand that a person can become conceited. They can be self-elevation. They can be, a person can become egocentric. You can have an inflated sense of self. You can have this competitive attitude. You can become high-minded. And then you can become self-deluded by satanic self-importance. And Paul understood this. And this is why when he's beginning to deal with spiritual gifts, he's not only using himself as a practical example of one who received grace, but he's warning that these gifts can become a matter of pride and we can think too highly of ourselves because we have a particular gift. See? So he wants to destroy all braggadocio before it even starts. At the very beginning of dealing with this subject, before he begins to itemize what these gifts are, he begins to squelch any concept of uh, pride that would be there. One of the most disgraceful churches in the entire New Testament is one of the most blessed churches you'll ever find. And that, as I mentioned before, the Corinthian church. When Paul is writing to them, in verse 26 of chapter 14, Paul said, when you meet together, one guy got a prophecy, one guy speaks in tongues, one guy, he said, this competition got to stop. It got to stop. See, Everybody want to big up themselves. And Paul said, it got to stop. It's not, it's not designed for the church. See, We're not in a competition. We're to work cooperatively together. And that's why Paul in, in uh, Corinthians chapter 40 and verse 26 says that, you know, you can't operate a church like this. One guy preaching in the church, one guy speaking in tongues in the church, another guy doing something. Imagine you coming to church, I'm preaching, somebody doing something else, and we call that church. That's what was going on in the Corinthian church. And Paul says, cut it out. Cut it out. The other thing that Paul says in chapter 13, 14, he said, you, you are in a state of confusion. He said, people come into the church and everybody's speaking in tongues. And you know what they begin to say? This church mad. Mad. You ever been into church yet? Everybody's speaking in tongues? I've been into one already. You've heard of People's Cathedral in Barbados, Holmes William, that is now dead. Had a church, I think about what, five or 10,000 members. I'm not criticizing his ministry in every detail, but I've been into that church. And quite frankly, I was in there and everybody's speaking in tongues. And I'm wondering, what's wrong with me? I can't pray. I can't, I can't do nothing at all. I try to concentrate on, and I can't concentrate because all of these voices, and they're not saying the same thing. State of confusion. See? Now, as a believer, if I'm confused, imagine a non-believer now who comes in. And Paul warns about, so he talks about holding down the disorder and the chaos. And he said, let everything be done decently and in order. See, that's what happens when you have a church that has a multiplicity of gifts. And people who are extremely talented and all competing for the preeminence. And Paul said, it, it, it's not the way the church is supposed to operate. It's a body. And the body has members. And members must cooperate. The hand can't disagree with the foot, and the foot can't disagree with the eye. There has to be a coordination, a cooperation. See? The Apostle Paul was brilliant in dealing with this subject. And so he called for sober thinking. And the word sober, I mentioned, is from two words. So, S, 
Suzo, S-U-O-Z-O, uh, which means to save and friend, which means mine. Which means a saved mind, a songed mind. That's what Paul appeals to. See? A songed mind. A mind that has balance. By the way, that word is the same word that is used in Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8. You remember when our Lord met the man at Gerardines? And he could tear the chains and he was sleeping in, in, uh, in the cemetery, as it were. And he was a rage. Nobody wanted to pass by because he was so powerful. And then when our Lord met him and, and spoke to him, they said he was now in his right mind. See, that word right mind is exactly the word of Paul, your song mind. See? Not a raging maniac. See? And uh, a schizophrenia thinking one thing and thinking the other, but a man with a balanced mind. See? That's what Paul is talking about here when he says, have a sober mind. You ever saw a drunkard yet? The word here that is used, sober, is the word that's used in connected with drunkenness. You ever saw a man who is drunk and uh, he can't put two words together, he's ready to fight everybody, whatever it is, and then he gets, the next day you meet him, you can't believe he's the same man. He's no have a song man. See? That's what the Apostle Paul is dealing with here uh, in this chapter. Now the third principle that Paul deals with, not only you have the personal illustration of the Apostle Paul and the peril that comes with, uh, with uh, spiritual gifts, but then Paul begins to lay down uh, two basic fundamental principles that should govern our understanding of spiritual gifts. These are two very key principles. The first one that Paul emphasizes is that spiritual gifts are all grace gifts. Once you understand this, there's no room for competition. There's no room for boasting. There's no room trying to outshine the other person. Once you understand it's a grace gift, because it means that it's something that is given to you by God. See? Nothing you should be proud about. And if it's given by God, it's given by God to use in the church. Not to compete with the other brother or sister who has a, another gift that you don't have. But the idea of grace, showing favor, is emphasized here in this passage. Look at verse number three. Let me mention three ways in which he emphasizes this. Look what he says in verse number three. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Notice, according as God have dealt to every man the measure of faith. So the Apostle Paul is attributing these gifts to God, doling out these gifts to the individual. Paul is saying in, in, in very clear language, these are grace gifts. It all has to do with God giving, God's grace. You know, when Paul was writing in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and he's uh, talking about his ministry and his calling, uh, you remember what he said in, Corinthian, in uh, Timothy chapter 1? He said, I thank God that he counted me worthy, and through grace he put me into the ministry. God put me into the ministry. That's what Paul is saying. And I... I, I Paul is above all people the, the apostle of grace. You remember what he said in Corinthians chapter 15 verse 10 as he looked on his ministry? He says, I am what I am by the grace of God. He understood that by the grace of God. See, he always credits whatever he is with God's grace. Not my natural talent or my natural ability, Paul is saying. 
But as an apostle, as a missionary, as a, a churchman, as a statesman in the ministry, I credit it to God. Whatever I am, whatever I accomplish, is through the grace of God. He asked another question. Who is sufficient for these things? And then he said, our sufficiency is in, in Christ. See, I'm just saying to you, the apostle Paul understood that these gifts were gifts that come out of, of grace. Notice another way in which he asserts this uh, again in, in, go back to chapter 12. In, in a latter part, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now the word dealt there means to divide up. It means to dole out. It means to allocate. It means to dispense. According as God has allocated or doled out or given to every man his faith. I notice the word there, every man, everyone. Man is used in a generic sense. It's referring to both men and referring to women as well, male and female. God has the one who has given out this measure of faith. But what is this measure of faith that Paul is talking about here? What does it mean in verse number 12 when he says that, when he uses that expression? In the last part of verse number 3, where he says that God have dealt out to every man the measure of faith. Now remember he's dealing with spiritual gifts. But what does it mean that God has dealt out the measure of faith? What's, what does it mean? Number one, it cannot mean that this is, is justifying faith. Okay? Uh, God does not measure out justifying faith to individuals and give you more justifying faith for the other guy than more justifying faith. Justifying faith is faith that leads to salvation. And everybody must have the same level of faith to have salvation. The justifying faith Paul had is the same justifying faith you must have. So the apostle Paul is not here dealing with the justifying faith that God has measured out justifying faith to people. That's not what he's talking about. The theme of this chapter is not salvation. The theme is spiritual gifts. So it needs to be very, very clear in our, in our mind that he's not talking about God distributing faith so that a person can believe and distributing this to you so that you can believe. No, justifying faith is all one. We are all justified by faith and we all need the same level of faith to be justified. Okay. Number two, the Apostle Paul cannot be referring to the gift of faith we find in Corinthians chapter 12, verse number nine. By the Spirit is given faith, given knowledge. There is such a gift thing as the gift of faith, but this is not what Paul is talking about. By the way, when a man has the gift of faith, a woman has the gift of faith, it means that they have an unusual capacity and an uncommon level of faith to believe things that the ordinary Christian can't seem to think or believe. It's like George Mueller, a man that can operate several orphanages without begging people for money. But on his knees before God, Asking God to bring in all that these orphans required. Not turning to business people to say, can you help support this? Or No, no, no. George Mueller had enough faith to believe that if God allowed him to start this orphanage, God would have to supply. And he never started an orphanage unless he was convinced God would supply. And you all know this. If you've read anything about the faith of George Mueller. There are times when George Mueller had the boys on the table. And they're sitting down to have a meal and they don't have a single thing to eat. I remember one incident that I, I remember reading about. He's got the children, they're all assembled. Well, what are we going to eat today? Well, let's pray and ask God to supply it for the day. 
And while he's praying and asking God to supply, there's a cart with milk around and the cart breaks down right in front of the home. Guess what they had for meal? Milk. Milk. Because the guy could not fix the cart and his brother gave the children the milk and let the milk spoil. But that's the kind of faith he had. Now, I don't have that kind of faith. I must well confess to you. I don't have that kind of... But there are people that God has endowed a tremendous level of faith. Not everybody has this quality of faith. It's called the gift of faith. Not saving faith. See, But faith to believe God. Take of um, Hudson Taylor. The man that started the inland missions to China. Uh, he went on the mission field without having any support. He prayed in his support. Now, how many people you know are missionaries that prayed in the support? You know when a missionary comes to the Caribbean, he has already secured all the support he needs for food, clothing, rent, insurance, health. He tries to get that covered. And it takes about three years to four years before a missionary can get down here in the Caribbean if he wants to be a missionary because he's raising his support. Not so with Hudson Taylor. He had the faith to believe that if God is calling to the ministry, he can go to China. And remember how distant China is from, 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 from England. But he's prepared to take that risk. And that risk is based on the fact that he has this level of faith. Again, I don't have that quality of faith. Because it's not my gift. It doesn't mean I don't have faith. But it's different between having faith and having the gift of faith. There are people that have tremendous you ask them about how is this going to happen. You, they can't tell you. They can't tell you. If I might use an illustration here, and I, I just use an illustration that uh, when we were doing these buildings, I don't know if you know this or not. I, number one, I didn't know how we would get them done. I'm saying that to say this. I didn't know where the money was coming, but I couldn't tell the church that. Because we voted to do the building. But I knew one thing. Once we got this thing started with the amount of men we had there and the cadre of men, it could be done. See? See? Now, if you want to call that great faith, I don't have to call that great faith. But we never once borrowed one single solitary cent to build those buildings. And the last thing the lady told me, the accountant told me with the value is about $1.5 million for the building and the apartments and everything in it. See? See? That's how it happened. But I don't have any big faith to believe those kind of things. But I had faith in the men we had at the time. And if we work gradually onto this matter, it could be done. You see. I'm just saying to you, there are people who have tremendous faith. Tremendous, and God gives them that, that, that faith. You don't have it, I don't have it. Right. And they can see things before you can see them done. You don't know how it's going to get done. So when Paul talks about faith here, he's not talking about justifying faith. He's not talking about a special faith of gift of faith that he's talking about. He's here talking about the matter of God giving the believer a level of faith for that person to exercise that gift that God has given to him in the church. See? Again, go back to verse chapter 12. For I say through the grace given unto me that every man that among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. See? What the Apostle Paul is saying that when God gives gifts, each gift requires a certain level of faith for the believer to operate on that level. 
and God measures out that amount of faith according to the gift. See, that's what Paul is saying in this particular passage. So when a person said, I have a spiritual gift, but I, I can't use it, I won't use it, you are insulting God's faith. You're really insulting God's faith because this God gives you enough faith to exercise that gift. That's why I say to you, the implications of what Paul is teaching in this passage has serious ramifications for the spiritual level of people within the church and within the ministry itself. So what I'm attempting to do in this series is to do three things. Number one, I want you to know what spiritual gifts are. What are spiritual gifts? What do we mean by spiritual gifts? Number two, I want you to discover which spiritual gift you have and God has given to you. And number three, I want you that once you have understood what spiritual gifts are and understand the gift that God has given to you, I want you to deploy that gift in this ministry. I want you to get engaged in this ministry, to use your, your gift in this ministry. Not outside. Because if God has placed you in this church, it's for the purpose of you exercising your gift within the church. That's why it's so important for us uh, to, to get this whole matter of spiritual gifts. Now, one of the things that we are going to do when this series is over is give you what I call a gift inventory brochure. And I will recommend two things. You fill out that brochure yourself looking at the questions and answering as honestly as possible. Don't try to change the questions. One person asked me, can I add this to it? No, you can't add to it. You can't subtract from it either. It is there to help you. So I, I got, this is my strength, but which, which, is, which is your stronger point? That's the important thing. Which is your stronger point? So you do it yourself. The other thing I'm going to suggest to you that you use this gift inventory and get a friend that is going to be objective. And ask them to look at you and fill out the form according to how they think what gift you have. And then you take what you've put out and take what your, your, your objective friend has, and look at it and see if there's some convergence. I think that helps you to identify more objectively what your gift is. See? So we're hoping by the end of this um, series that you can do that exercise to discover your gift. Now, of course, I want to explain to you why I think this is important for us uh, to deal with this particular subject. I am looking for us to seize opportunities that are going to be available for us if things work out the way that we think they're going to work out. I'm not here dealing with, with, with the whole question of negativity. No, I'm not dealing with that. I'm dealing with opportunities that are there. That we can seize. But we can only seize those opportunities if the people within the church would use their gifts to help with these different ministries. This is a small church, no question about that. So if it's a small church, it means that everybody has a role to play. You know, you go to some of these big churches, got five and thousand, five and six thousand people, and you just sit down and soak in everything. You just go there to soak in, that's all. You don't get involved, you know, you just go in. Well, if you want to be a sponge, be a sponge. But that's not why you're put in the church to be a sponge. You're put in the church to, to be a person who gets involved in ministry. To serve. See? Serve each other. Encourage one another. Love one another. 
unity. That's what the Bible said. The one anothering of the Bible is what is needed in the church. So I want us to work together because I think, what, number one, we want to try and get a, what I call a, a vibrant Sunday school ministry going again. Now, I don't know if you know this, and uh, you, some of you may know this, but the youth ministry that we have now has benefited enormously from this Sunday school. Most, I understand, of the people who are in the youth ministry came out of that little Sunday school that you guys were having on Sunday evening. Think about that for just a moment. See? Think about that. So if we did not have this Sunday school, we would have a diminished youth ministry. So we need to get a vibrant Sunday school going again. But how are you going to get a vibrant Sunday school going again if people are not prepared to get involved and use their gifts? Can't happen. What about the rehab? Let's suppose the, 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 the incorporation goes to... The government, we just go and sign the document, get the lease agreement. We start doing everything. CWE says, okay, we're going to come and help you build the, the whatever it is, and so on and so forth. Then we, you know, what's going to happen now? You can't run a rehab ministry without people getting involved. Here's the problem, though. Often the same people involved in the Sunday school ministry, it's the same people who know got to get involved because they're the ones doing the work. The others just sit by and enjoy the ministry. That's the problem. That's the problem. And by the way, I will tell you, it's the ones that really do nothing that the ones that complain the most. I make no bones about that. They got too much time on their hand. See? They're not involved in ministry. See? Get involved. See? Get involved. I'm so thankful that they started the men's... Uh, Men's fellowship. And I think we had about, what, 12? I don't know what it was, the figure we had the other day, and so on and so forth. But I, I see out of that men's fellowship, a boys' brigade starting for the school. I see four, 16 men, four each week, each Saturday, ministering to these boys in a boys' brigade. I see that happening. I really see that happening. We're here, I've been here 21 years, talking about needing to focus on this, uh, trying to get into connect with the school. Now that is a very real possibility. Because if you got four teams of four men, the only one, those four teams got to give one Saturday of the entire month. It's not a burden every Saturday, every Saturday. But surely, in the interest of the welfare of the young men in the school, you should be willing to at least give one Saturday out of the whole month. Does that not make sense? It does. See, that is a possibility. And I hope it comes to fruition before I die or before my time is over. See? Because I think those kids need help. Most of them, uh, Robert will tell you when he talked, most of them don't have a father in the home. So how are we going to minister to young men in the this, in this school if we don't have a ministry to minister to them? But how are we going to do it if we don't have people willing to put their gifts at the disposal of the church? You can't start something without people saying, Pastor, I'm willing to help there. So it's not just the rehab, it's not just the Sunday school. And I don't think there's a single person sitting here this morning who doesn't think that those young boys in this school, over 150, that they don't need some kind of help. They're not getting it in the home, they're not getting it in the community. The church has to minister to these people. But how is it going to minister until somebody gets a burden and say, you know what, I can help in this matter, Pastor. I can't teach Sunday school, but you know what? I can be there. I can teach them to do drills. I can teach them to do things like plumbing. I can teach them to do things like fixing a lawnmower or whatever it is. 
connect with them. And I haven't stopped there yet, but what about the Bible Institute? We got all the, all the literature we need to start the Bible Institute in the office already. We bought it already. What about when that gets started? And the counseling starts. Well, what happens then? What about the Ten Crusades? Oh, Pastor, gosh. You're really wearying us out now. But where I live... I can hear the Seventh-day Adventists got a tent way above there. Every, almost every Sunday night, I can hear them with a tent preaching away. And I'm asking myself, where, where are we? Where's our voice? Where's our voice? See? And I would like to say that's part of the reason we started the homiletics class. So that the men in the church who want to hone their skills in homiletics would learn how to prepare messages. And when we have crusades... They help preaching the crusades. They help preaching the church. See, that's the whole purpose of it. There's not a one-man show. There are no lone rangers in the ministry. See, we all have to work together. But you need people to put their gifts at the disposal of the ministry. And the other thing is this: I'm not too sure if we we got getting back there yet. But we might get back there where it is a possibility that we could do the home Bible studies in people's homes. I don't know who wants people in the home right now. That's the truth. I don't know. Some people seem to be okay with it. Other people still seem to have a problem. But let's suppose it goes back to some kind of normalcy. And there are people willing to do that. Well, to my mind, it's more important reaching people outside the church than to come together and have a nice, jolly good time. Uh, I would rather sacrifice one of the four ministries we started on Sunday nights and include that. Because we need to go to the people if they're not coming to us. What I'm saying to you, we need to release the full potential of this church and this congregation. This is not a time for us to hold back. It's a time for us to push ahead with vigor and with enthusiasm. We've got to make sure we understand that the cause of Christ is more important than any one single individual. And the time is short. And we have to do what we need to do and do it now. Go work today in my vineyard, he said to the guy. Go work today. Go work today in my vineyard. Go work today in my vineyard. Lord, I will follow you. Go work today. See, there's no guarantee of tomorrow or next week or a year from now. That's why it is urgent for us to get involved in ministry as a church. To put it in negative terms... There are three things that happen when the truth about spiritual gifts are ignored. Let me put it in a negative way. Number one, there is waste, wasted effort in people trying ministries for which they are not gifted to do. Can you imagine a carpenter trying to do plumbing? Uh, can you imagine a, 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 um, a carpenter trying to do surgery? Would you allow us? A carpenter performs surgery on you. you know. But in many, many cases, the, the church finds itself in that position. There are people who are simply not suited for a particular thing. And I know that they volunteer to do it because nobody else volunteers. But they know that that's not what they enjoy doing. And by the way, one of the ways that you can know your, your gift is do you enjoy doing what, what this thing is? If you don't enjoy it, you can pretty much know it is outside the pale of your giftedness. 
So one of the things when we ignore this Portuguese is that it's a wasted effort because people are in ministries and they're not gifted for those ministries. And that's why they get so frustrated. They don't have the requisite spiritual gift to handle that ministry. So it's a burden to them in the sense that it's, they wish they could get all of it, but, you know, their conscience tell them, well, you know, somebody got to do it. That's what happens when people don't make the gifts available to the church. Other people who are not gifted in that year fill in that post, but they do it with frustration. Secondly, when we don't identify our spiritual gifts, there's what I call unused potential because there are many who would love to serve, but they don't know what their spiritual gift is. So there must be some kind of means of trying to sustain one. It's not that I don't my part, I pass, I want to serve, but I don't know what my gift is. So when that happens in the church, you have untapped potential. The potential is there, but it's not tapped into because they really don't know this. And they're very honest with you. And thirdly, there's what I call an uneven quality in some ministries. Some ministries prosper because they've got the right gifts attached to it. And some, gifts, some ministries are hindered because gifts and the work are not matched. So what you have quite frankly is different levels of quality of ministry. So when I am talking about this matter of spiritual gifts, it's a very relevant topic for the church. We need to understand the importance of of this matter. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy answers five basic questions about spiritual gifts. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.